G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation and you're hearing it on your community radio station. Today, we're looking at the use of legislative manoeuvring by governments to suppress dissent, first in Victoria and then in the UK. Across Australia, state governments have been working to tailor laws against environmental activists that, frankly, protect the interests of corporations and batter the concept of a democratic society. In the case of the New South Wales government, the jailing of Violet Coco for 15 months for stopping traffic for an hour and a half and using a flare gun to bring awareness to the expansion of extractivist industries that are destroying our planet caused such a backlash with not just fellow environmental activists coming out to demonstrate, but unions and individuals who can feel the coming wave of anti-democratic laws pushing up against the ability of the population to show dissent against economic interests that, again, frankly, don't seem to be in the public interest. In Victoria, the Timber Safety Zone Bill which will come into effect in May, is posing as a safety measure but is purely targeting forest protectors and citizen scientists who have been monitoring and defending old-growth forest from an unprofitable state-subsidised industry which is destroying irreplaceable old-growth forest. At a mass meeting called by Gecko, Goonga Environment Centre in Melbourne recently, Natalie Hogan, ecosystems lawyer with Environment Justice Australia, explained what the laws look like on the ground and Godfrey Moyes, Executive Director of the United Workers' Union and co-founder of CoPower, gives a perspective on the situation as it affects workers. Very exciting job of giving you a bit of an overview tonight of the um, amendments that will be coming into effect in May, what that means and the impacts they'll have. At the end of last year, towards the end of last year, the Sustainable Forests Timber Amendment Timber Harvesting Safety Zones Bill was passed. Um, It amends the Sustainable Forests Timber Act, which is one of the pieces of legislation um, that applies to forestry operations in Victoria um, and specifically regulates activity in timber harvesting safety zones. The timber harvesting safety zone is a logging coop. Um, It can extend 150 metres from the boundary of a logging coop um, and can include a public road as well, so quite a broad area. And timber harvesting activities in the Act is logging, it's salvage logging and regeneration burning. So the main types of offences that we typically see under the Act are entering or remaining in a timber harvesting safety zone um, and hinder, obstruct or interfere with um, timber harvesting operations with or without a prohibited item. Um, And that can be by way of infringement notice or in court. 
And so last year when the bill was introduced to amend the laws, there was debate in Parliament in the lower and the upper house. There was a lot of discussion from both sides. In support of the bill, there were concerns raised about workplace safety and in opposition of the bill, obviously concerns about democratic freedoms um, and stripping away the right to peaceful protest. And of course, it's always been EJA's view and the view of a lot of other um, community groups, social justice groups, legal organisations um, and um, other members of the community that the focus really should be on enforcing environmental laws to protect and restore country, climate and ecosystems and not on criminalising peaceful protest. So the bill was passed in August and the amendments will come into effect in May and there are four main ways that the laws will change. Firstly, um, there will be significant increases in maximum penalties for offences under the Act um, and that those penalties in some cases um, will triple, which is very significant and concerning. Um, but importantly, I think it's good to note as well that, that they are maximum penalties. They're not necessarily an indication of the most likely penalty, but still very concerning amendments. In some cases, that's up to $21,000 in fines or 12 months imprisonment um, for the hinder, obstruct or interfere with timber harvesting operations uh, with a prohibited thing. The second way um, the laws will be amended is the broadening of search and seizure powers. So authorised officers within a timber harvesting safety zone, safety zone can um, have broader powers to search bags and vehicles and persons in and around timber harvesting safety zones if they believe that they are about to, they are committing or they have committed an offence. And that's a lot broader than what the laws are currently. There'll also be changes to what's defined as a prohibited thing under the Act, which will include things like a PVC pipe and probably most concerningly second to this increases in maximum penalties is the introduction of banning notices. And that's an entirely new scheme under the Act They'll be able to ban people for 28 days from entering a timber harvesting safety zone, which really does have consequences for um, folks who are seeking to oversee what's happening in the forests. And we know this is a very political space and that um, now more than ever, citizen science is important, community oversight is important. So that's, um, again, quite a concerning amendment that will be made to the, to the laws. Importantly, also infringement notices won't increase as a result of the amendments, so it is just um, offences under the Act that go to court. And also these are strict liability offences, what's known as strict liability offences, which means that um, effectively an authorised officer um, charging someone with an offence isn't required to consider the reason um, that that person has entered a timber harvesting safety zone. So that's not to say that the reason's not relevant and that it doesn't become relevant down the track, but it's not something that um, has to be considered at the time. We will be developing fact sheets and a guide to put all of that um, information together so that it's readily accessible. We are extremely um, committed to supporting forest activists and citizen scientists going forward 
um, especially after the amendments come into effect. So please feel free to get in touch anytime if you have any questions. Um, there are lots of other community legal organisations in Victoria as well who are doing um, great work in this space and produce a lot of great resources. So there's lots of support out there um, and we're always happy to hear from people as well. I think that's it from me. Godfrey, you want to take it away? Godfrey from United Workers Union and CoPower. Thanks very much, Tuffy. And um, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the of the land on which we, we come. Uh, and frankly, I'm still kind of angry that my ancestors got kicked off the commons by some dirty capitalists a couple of hundred years ago. Um, so, I, frankly... Um, that righteous anger is, is something that I stand in solidarity with. Um, I want to do three things this evening. Uh, number one, I just want to contextualise this attack on the right to organise for climate and the environment um, within a broader attack uh, in Australia on our basic civil, civil liberties over the last 30 years, but particularly with respect to an area that I have some experience in, with respect, uh, which is the labour movement. Number two, I just want to tease apart the false dichotomy that is presented between workplace safety uh, and organising around the environment and climate that is presented or assumed in this, uh, in this piece of legislation. And then number three, just suggest some potential ways to organise uh, on a class basis around climate and the environment that involves um, organising within the workplace. So just briefly, uh, this attack on the right to organise with respect to climate and the environment can't be disentangled ultimately to what we have in Australia, which in the sphere of labour relations... Uh, we don't really have the freedom of association at law. We don't have free trade unions really at law. Uh, in this country, the Fair Work Act, the Fair Work Brackets Registered Organisations Act, close brackets, it runs for hundreds and hundreds of pages, plus 500 pages, which essentially regulates unions and there's a whole bunch of regulations on top of that. That's not normal. The Japanese Act that, that regulates the conduct of trade unions has two clauses. The Canadian Act that registers uh, that, that regulates trade unions runs for 13 pages in two languages. Even the UK Act that is the home of the, the Thatcher re-regulation of the labour market, you're, you're talking about 150 pages. The freedom of association at Australian law is the inverse of what it is in international law. In international law, the freedom of association is essentially a positive and collective right. The right for workers to get together in a workplace, across a sector, across an industry and positively determine how they are going to get together and regulate their working life and fight for their interests. Under Australian law since 1996, it is individual and focused around 
regulating or protecting people from not doing things. It is Orwellian in the true sense of the term. And that flows through in terms of how we regulate taking action, uh, the grounds on which people can take action. And this, to, to say that this is a thing, I know that we're talking about different jurisdictions here, but to say that this legislation around controlling um, environmental activists is for workplace safety when we have an IR regime that actively stops workers from taking into account their basic rights is, frankly, offensive. And there is not some strict... (laughs) There is not a strict dichotomy between, okay, workplace safety and standing up for the right, standing up for the environment, standing up for a safe climate. We conducted a survey at United Workers' Union uh, through the UTS um, in 2019-2020. So before, well, after the bushfires but before the floods because now we mark time in terms of disasters and that's just the era that we're in. So while the pandemic was on, after the fires, before the floods. Um, 56.3% of our members in who participated in that survey, uh, and, and a majority in every state and territory nationally of our members said to us, the climate change today, pre-floods, climate change is negatively impacting their working conditions. So, that, so climate is a thing that Australian workers are saying they are having to pay for. That is a threat to their safety. That is a threat to their take-home paying conditions. And so there is not some sphere over here where it's workplace safety and dirty environmentalists over there and the twain shall never meet and we've got to protect one from the other. If you don't care about the right to organise around climate, you do not care about workplace safety. And that is just a fact. That is a reality. Um, And... The key question is, where do we go from here and how do we do it? And for me, partly that is, how do we organise around climate as a class issue? And that comes down to how are people, how do people get to have a say and who pays? Um, And so that's really just the old unionist tradition of bread and roses, who pays and who has a say. Um, And I think there are a couple of ways through. One is around workplace safety itself, semi-ironically. Every Australian worker has the right to a safe workplace. Every every worker has the right to um, elect their own health and safety reps, to be consulted about workplace safety and to cease work where there's an immediate threat to their health and safety. So... The right to strike doesn't just exist under the Fair Work Act. It exists as a matter of basic human dignity. Uh, and getting organised around safety at work is key. Taking control where we can as consumers and, and instituting some democracy into the energy system is also a really important thing and it's part of the reason why I'm one of the co-founders of CoPower. It is unashamedly a project of democratisation taking the bits of what we can do today 
which is collectively bargaining with a licensed retailer and using that to build a new world, which is doing stuff like having a pool of funds to uh, help fund and protect people who are engaged in climate organising um, or, or funding other um, sorts of democratic transition projects. And the third thing is, even under the strictures of the Fair Work Act, it is incorrect to say that you can't, you can't bargain around climate under the Fair Work Act per se, but you can do it if you link it to terms of conditions of employment to the employment relationship. So I'm, I don't have time to really go through that, but that is a way through there. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. So people are getting poorer, their conditions are getting worse. That you've got nurses and prison officers and university lecturers and teachers using food banks. The government has held working people's wages down for, uh, since 2010, since 2008 actually. Many people haven't had a real chance to pay rides for over a decade. More and more people are being drawn into that because, of course, inflation, which means price hikes and profit hikes. Everybody feels I can't get by, and that's why there is so much strike action. That was a community announcement put out by War on Want in the UK, a coordinating organisation explaining what is happening for workers in the UK as a raft of new laws are being crafted to criminalise dissent in the form of public demonstration, divestment policies and strike action. Speaking at a recent War on Want webinar, Professor Keith Irwin, Professor of Public Law at King's College London, outlined the specific laws being thrown at workers. So I'm going to speak about the uh, Minimum uh, Service Levels Bill, uh, which is the latest uh, attack on the right to strike. Uh, and we should remember, I think, that uh, under successive Tory governments, I mean, this is an attack that started in 1980, 1979-1980. And I think, by my, by my reckoning, this, the current bill is the seventh, seventh uh, major piece of legislation attacking the right to strike, with very little uh, by way of compensation uh, uh, the other way. And we should also remember that uh, while we focus on this bill, that the current government uh, also uh, introduced uh, two measures last year. One was to allow employers to, to uh, use agency workers uh, during a strike, thereby reversing legislation uh, which uh, had stood for a long time. And secondly, they uh, raised the uh, level of uh, damages that employers can recover from trade unions in the event of uh, unlawful strike activity. So uh, largest unions can now be liable uh, in each strike for up to uh, one million pounds. While looking at the bill, we should be mindful of the fact that we already have some of the toughest uh, restrictions on the right to strike of any country in what used to be referred to the uh, liberal uh, democratic world. Three points I wanted to highlight. One is, first point, is that the bill authorizes uh, ministers uh, to set uh, minimum service levels for six uh, major sectors of the economy. So the minimum service levels have not been set by Parliament. Parliament is being asked to give the power to ministers to determine what the levels uh, should be. And the sectors, I won't go through them all, but they include, for example, 
uh, areas where there have been industrial activity uh, either now or in the recent past, namely health service, transport uh, and uh, education. So it'll be up to the minister to decide what the minimum service level should be in these cases. There is no guidance in the bill from Parliament as to what the level should be. There's no requirement of parliamentary approval or any effective requirement of parliamentary approval once these uh, decisions have been taken by ministers in respect of the uh, different sectors. So as the bill currently stands, it could be that a minister could require a minimum service level of, say, 90%, 95% or whatever uh, the minister may choose uh, in the sector in question. So the first point I would make is that this is a bill which is not just an assault on the right to strike or an assault on the freedom of trade unions, but it's an assault on parliamentary democracy itself. I mean, basically, it's giving total power uh, to government ministers uh, to determine the circumstances in which workers in this country uh, can withdraw their labour. The second point is that once minimum service levels have been provided by regulations, uh, by ministers in any of these six uh, different sectors, it will then be possible when a strike occurs uh, for the employer to issue what will be referred to as a works notice to the trade union, which is involved in the strike. And bear in mind at this stage, the union will have complied with uh, all the legal formalities uh, which the law uh, currently requires. I mean, formalities that go way back to uh, Thatcher. So what is the, the effect of a work notice to the union is that the employer can requisition uh, workers uh, to uh, work uh, during uh, the strike. So basically, the employer has the power by law to require people uh, to work or the power to order people to work. You've got to go back to uh, 1940 uh, to find a comparable power in British legislation. And the only time that we have had arrangements whereby people can be requisitioned to work is during war and I mean, for circumstances which are quite obvious. I mean, this is a kind of wartime power uh, which is being taken and being given to employers. And I think it's important to note that uh, in this country, the present time, not even a court has the power to order people to work. And indeed, there is legislation which expressly provides the court cannot order people to work during a strike or during any other uh, period or for any any other reason. So this is really quite an exceptional power that the government is proposing to give uh, to uh, employers. And I think the nature of the power is compounded by two additional considerations. The first is that the power can be used in order to require not just uh, union members, to uh, work during the strike, but also to require uh, union officials. Uh, that is to say, shop stewards or leaders of the strike at the workplace, they too can be required by the employer under a work notice uh, to work during the period uh, of a strike. Another point related to that is the sanction that if you refuse to comply with a work notice, that is to say, if you refuse to be requisitioned and you refuse to work, in accordance with the uh, instructions or directions of the employer, then you can be dismissed. And if you are dismissed, you will lose your protection, your automatic protection from unfair dismissal for having taken part in uh, a strike or other forms of industrial action. So that is the second point. And I think that is, in a sense, it is a, an extreme power 
uh, which is being taken, uh, some people would say, by an extreme government. But it gets worse, because the third point is this, that if a work notice is issued uh, by an employer, then an obligation swings to the union in the sense that the union will then be under an obligation to take steps to ensure that its members comply with the work notice. Now that is an extraordinary provision because effectively what it does is to requisition the union at the request of the employer to break the strike. So effectively the union has got to take steps to ensure that its members continue to work and do not take part in the strike. Now the question arises, what is it that the union is expected to do in these circumstances? Well, it's not clear. All the legislation says at the moment is that the union is required to take reasonable steps to ensure that its members comply with the work notice. So you can speculate, does that mean to say that the union is under an obligation to order its members to cross picket lines, including its workplace officials? Is it under a duty then to ensure that uh, those members who do not cross the picket line uh, will, must be expelled from the union or disciplined by the union? Where are the limits? Where are the boundaries? of this extraordinary obligation on the part of the union. And the point to note here is that if the union fails to take these re reasonable steps to ensure that members comply with the work notice, the effect of that is not only is the strike unlawful, not only can the union be restrained by injunction, not only can the union uh, be sued possibly for damages, but any individual who takes part in the strike will lose his or her protection from unfair dismissal for having taken part in what hitherto had been lawful industrial action. So that individual or these individuals will lose their protection from unfair dismissal because of the uh, failure of the union, something over which they have no control. Uh, but nevertheless, they will lose whatever protection the law uh, currently provides. So we're looking at this bill, just, just, just to highlight these three points. One is the, uh, the removal of parliament from the process. Secondly, the empowerment of employers to do things which uh, not even courts can do in this country, not even judges can do in this country, which is to require people to work. And thirdly, uh, to use the union, to enlist the union as a matter of law, uh, to act in the interest of the employer uh, to defeat uh, the strike. So it is marked, I mean, it's self-evidently about uh, reducing the power of, uh, not just the power of people to protest and to object to the activities of the government, but it's also about the ability of workers to resist the power of employers. And that, I think, is you know, an important aspect uh, to this legislation. The government itself has acknowledged in an impact assessment uh, document in relation to uh, an earlier version uh, of, of this bill that the effect of these restrictions will be to reduce wages. So it's quite clear what the agenda is, I think. One is it's authoritarian, two is about uh, removing resistance, and three is about cutting wages and reducing a worker power to fight back. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or at your favourite podcast site. And you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. Until next time, stick together.